start the proverbial stream. And here we are. This is indeed, yes, yes, yes. Uh, as it is right now. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. Here we go. Welcome, welcome, welcome to VOX World. Uh, I'm your host, Kane Sims, and uh, I am with today Adam Odeski from Sensely. Adam, hello. Hello, Kane. How are you? Good to connect. Good to connect, my friend. Good to connect. Long time follower, first time caller is what uh, that's 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 me to you, not you to me. I've yeah. been following you for it's a long awesome. time. Um, yeah. Definitely, definitely. Um, yeah, it's. Uh, I'm so glad to, that we can connect, and, and definitely, definitely appreciative of your of your time. And, and we're going to jump in in just one second. But very firstly, before we do that, I just want to quickly give a shout out to everyone who's tuning in. Whether you're on the podcast, whether you're on LinkedIn, YouTube, wherever you are, uh, we are doing a webinar on. Uh, it's it's a fortnight. It's probably two weeks away now, depending on when you listen to this. But it will be on the. Uh, is it the ninth? Let me just double check my dates. The ninth of November. Save the day, 9th of November. Uh, and what it is, is we will be joined by Wisdom. We did a webinar with them previously. We had a look at that tool. We had a look at the, the conversational analytics components there. This time, we're going to be taking you through a framework for chatbot improvement. And this is the, the whole kind of theme for this is expecto patronum, summoning the uh, majesty of chatbot improvement. If you're, fat, if you're a Harry Potter fan, you'll like the, the theme for this one. Uh, but even if you're not a Harry Potter fan, it doesn't really matter because it's not magic. It is a proven framework. It's a step-by-step -step process. And we're going to walk through some case studies and some examples of how you can first find the things that need your attention so you're not working on the wrong things. You make sure you're working on things that are moving the needle. What kind of things can you do to remedy it? How do you track improvements over time? And how do you make sure that your chatbot is constantly delivering value to uh, to the business? So if you are interested in joining that, you can go to vux.world forward slash events, or you can go to the vux.world website and hit the events tab there and feel free to enroll and join. And we will see you next Thursday. Uh, all right. As I said, thank you, Adam, for for joining me. Let's let's kick off. Let's kick off with with yourself first of all, and, and we'll we'll get into Sensely because I know Sensely's been around for a, a long time, actually. Um, so tell yeah, tell us tell us a bit about yourself and how you how you kind of got involved with with Sensely. Uh, yeah, sure. Um, so I've actually been in the avatar or the voice user interface world for a very long time. My my first job out of college was actually with the Oracle Voice Lab in Chicago, where we were building enterprise. Uh, this was back in 2001. I guess I'm trying to mm -hmm. trying to figure out. I'm getting old. I feel pretty young. I feel like a kid still, but I'm, I guess I'm pretty old now. But back in two, back in the early 2000s, I should say, uh, my first job out of college was with the Oracle Voice Lab, and the um, the goal of the Oracle Voice Lab was to build uh, enterprise vo voice applications that would sit on top of the Oracle application server. So things like email and calendar and, uh, and my files and things college, like that, sort of like. What Siri does today, or the Apple, you know, the, the smartphones do today, we we're building in voice with voice applications. And the goal for establishing the Oracle Voice Lab and these applications was basically one executive at Oracle who wanted to listen to his email on his commute in Silicon Valley from like his his place in Santa Cruz uh, up to uh, Redwood City. So he really wanted to like listen to his emails as he was driving. He's like, okay, well let's let's establish this lab so we can build these voice applications. So I can listen, you know, listen to like what I have to do for the day and my emails from the, from the last night. And my first sort of, I guess, claim to fame or one of the, actually the first applications that I wrote was voice access to email where uh, it was wow. based on sort of the voice a voicemail model. And, and it's interesting with the voicemail model because back, I guess, voicemails, you can just tap and listen to voicemails today, but you know, quite early before, 
the way the way you would listen to voicemails is that it wouldn't go from the the latest voicemail that you have down to the earliest unread voicemail it would start at the earliest unread voicemail that you have and go up to the latest so more chronological order and so that was the pattern that we used for building voice access to email we wanted it to be just like voicemail and that was kind of a tricky algorithm to figure out which which of your emails is the most unread one you know at, at the earliest unread right. email that you have so i had to like build this application uh to sort of start with that earliest unread email even though you had maybe other unread emails scattered throughout your inbox but the earliest that was in chronological or in like pattern order that also follows other unread emails all the way up to the top um wow. and we used kind of a uh, I, I think it was like a Genesis platform or the Voice Genie platform, IVR platform at the time, to uh, to basically use Voice XML, right? And I was a Voice yeah. XML developer. I started out as a Voice XML developer to uh, to build these um, to build these applications. Uh, and besides email, I built you know a calendar, and so you can listen to like your you know the appointments that you have for the day, and 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 you know and files. So it's kind of an early version of a of a voice based assistant, digital assistant. Mm. You can, yeah, yeah. you can um, compose new emails and you would use your voice to basically compose the emails. We didn't have great speech to text technology back then. So the, the emails would come as with a voice with an audio attachment, basically, um, of, of your recording. Uh, but we had, you know, a large grammar, for instance, a large model of all the contacts that, that you would have. And we had recognition to like basically say the name of the person that you're trying to email. So that was mm -hmm. kind of an early experience. One of the earliest, I think, experiences in building these kind of voice-only IVR applications for enterprise, right? For personal information, for information management that that uh, employees could use uh, whenever they were away from the phone. So that was sort of the start of my career. That's how I got into the space, um, building these applications. Later on, I actually worked on a, a real voicemail product uh, that was based on email, except the, the emails were actual kind of deemed as voicemails. You can just listen to your voicemails. That, that used email servers to basically uh, be transferred around. And later on, I went after that, I went to work for uh, for Tell Me Networks, which was uh, later acquired by Microsoft. And then- That was another example of a similar thing though, wasn't it? An IVR-based assistant. That's right, that's right. And Tell Me Networks had a, a very actually large uh, enterprise business as well. And this is where I got a chance to work with big companies um, building both inbound and outbound IVR applications for their customer service. Mm -hmm. Uh, so we worked with you know companies like United Airlines and E-Trade and um, a bunch of, of a bunch of be, uh, these big names, uh, insurance companies like Humana, et cetera. Um, and I always had a I had a kind of a niche for healthcare. You know, um, on the website it tells of a story that you know I've been pr promoting that you know my um, my family had a lot of kind of healthcare issues um, over the years. My grandma especially had heart failure and. It was interesting. I was so experienced with these customer service IVR applications, but if you look at you know the way doctors work, the way hospitals work, they hardly used any of these kind of technologies to communicate with their patients. It was always difficult to get a hold of a doctor. It was difficult to book an appointment, and especially people with chronic conditions. You know, they they hardly ever followed up. Uh, and and you know the the way to, to better these conditions is for you to check like you know, check various vital signs like blood pressure and weight and. Uh, you know, other things like glucose levels, if you're diabetic. And I always like, I wondered why is the, the healthcare industry so far behind, you know, travel and transportation, for instance, or insurance or, you know, uh, hospitality. Uh, and those are the industries I was mainly dealing with, tell me, and Microsoft. And so that's kind of, that itch became sort of a passion of mine to build something 
that was similar to what I was building in, you know, at, at Tell Me and at, at Oracle, but specifically focused on the healthcare industry to do these kind of IVR outbound follow-ups and, uh, you know, conversations where somebody can report something new or report their symptoms. And that's sort of the, that led me to eventually start building out Sensely to focus on that part of the industry, which I, I thought was very much underserved, but at the same time, the need was, I thought, higher than, uh, you know, uh, both the social need and the, and, the, and the financial need, you know, was was higher than any other sort of enterprise applications I've ever worked on. And that was sort of the, the focus that I started, the path that I started going on, which eventually mm -hmm. led, led to creating Sensely. Uh, and then here, here we are. Yeah, here we are. The rest yeah. is history, so they say. Yeah. Um, that's really interesting, that. The, the, the stuff from... from before the kind of like the tell me stuff and that mm -hmm. was that using like keyword recognition was there like an it was it like one of the first sort of like intent based nlu systems like what kind of stuff was that using and and how did that inform what you wanted to do when you started building sensely yeah so back then tell me and a bunch of other companies in the space and this was around you know 2005 2010 i would say that that period in time um, that was still heavily using voice XML as a language for creating these applications. And the way voice XML works, it's very similar to HTML, where you would specify these tags of prompts that you want the, you know, the voice bot or the IVR system to say. And then you'd have these, we call them grammars back then. I haven't used that term. I haven't heard that term now being used in a while. But you would build grammars of the things that you wanted to recognize. And now I guess these are called intents. Um, and the way you build grammars, there's a bunch of these grammar specifications like GSR and, and some other ones, but they kind of involve both um, sort of specifying the kind of keywords, right, that you want the system, the speech recognition system to, to listen for. And some of these can be very large. You can have a very large data set of, of keywords. And then you could also specify like slot fill. So which, which keywords or which words or which phrases I uh, need to be assigned to a particular slot. And that's kind of a definition of an intent, right? You have a bunch of these kind of phrases and patterns, and there's a lot of these um, pattern matching uh, type of uh, uh, scripting involved into figuring out like these particular patterns and these kind of patterned orders is what a person has to say in order to fill this particular slot. Uh, and that's the intent definition, I think, is much more um, broad now, and you can specify a lot more things that you'd be able to specify before. But, you know, the GSR and the other kind of grammar definitions that then were, were pretty sophisticated. Uh, the, the speech recognition systems obviously weren't as sophisticated because you didn't have this speech to text translation that you have now. Uh, and the matching of the speech recognition system was specifically done on these grammars. You have to pass in into the speech recognition system specifically what you're looking for and it'll tell you whether there's a match or not. Now what it does is obviously translate it to text and then you can do a lot more uh, more specific and more customized matching on that text to figure out exactly what you know what you're looking for what the intent should match to mm. what what do you think because like, because voice xml not not very many companies use voice xml anymore yeah. don't do they whereas our cto justin he, he um was saying that there's a lot of functionality that voice xml had that mm -hmm. now doesn't kind of exist like what 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 is has, is there anything from your perspective being lost in the kind of transition to that more sort of speech recognition, translate it to text, pass it off to a to a uh, an NLU system? And like, is there yeah, is there anything that you think has been sort of lost there? Is there any benefits to it over and above um, what you um, described? 
I think the specification of how you would listen for particular types of phrases or particular kinds of intentions was much kind of easier to imagine for a developer to kind of figure out like this, these are the kinds of things that I'm, I'm listening for. Uh, but I don't think there's anything that's been lost specifically. Um, I think there's just more features that were more obvious that made people think about how to develop an application, like the, these grammar specifications. So it kind of allows you like, what exactly this is, do I want from this? And it's harder to do that now with just speech to text where you're getting like a text string. Um, the other thing that, you know, in text to speech, you use uh, SSML, which is a markup language to specify like the prosody or how uh, or the language or how something is pronounced or how something is spoken. And I see fewer and fewer companies and developers using the power of SSML to mm -hmm. specify how to pronounce specific specific things. They kind of rely on the text-to-speech engines to just give them what they want when they give it the text without thinking about how that text should be spoken. Um, but the SSML inside VoiceXML kind of provided sort of an obvious way and, and made the developer think or the designer think about specifically not just you know how, what what the text should be spoken according to design, but how the text should be spoken. Um, what kind of tonality to use, what kind of prosody to use, uh, where to put in the specific like excitement or sp emotional cues. Uh, we do that quite a bit at Sensely because, you know, healthcare conversations by nature have to be empathetic or we want them to be as empathetic as possible to reassure patients or to reassure, you know, people that everything's going to be okay. And we use quite a bit of SSML in our work, but I don't see a lot of designers uh, while building voice applications do, do these things today because I, I don't think a lot of them actually know that this, even though you can, and most text-to-speech engines, you can embed SSML inside the prompts, but they're just not well known. Um, yeah, I agree, and and that's that's with a voice user interface, all you have is what it sounds like, mm -hmm. and so like the SSML is a crucial sort of design tool to make sure that you can create the experience in a mm -hmm. way that people expect. You know. So I, I definitely agree. Yeah, yeah. There's such an underutilization of SSML. I think the Alexa community uh, mm -hmm. i think that's when i first come across sensei actually it was when i was kind of like you know really tracking the alexa movement we were building out and designing alexa skills and google actions and stuff and that mm -hmm. i think amazon did a pretty decent enough job of kind of you know educating people about ssml um mm -hmm. but the, the the community now is there's people come from absolutely all over the place some people come from messaging now they're kind of doing voice some people come from the contact center kind of like getting into it that way and so i, I agree yeah there's, there's definitely a gap there in people's uh one maybe is understanding and two certainly usage of ssml right and it does make a huge difference and if you look at the rate you know the ratings for how people how people complete conversations what people actually think of the of the you know the app the voice bot um those things really make a difference as far as like judgment, as far as appreciation, as far as empathy and connection. Um, I think those are important tools uh, to build really high quality voice applications. Mm, definitely. So, so, so you, you left what was then Microsoft, then you, uh, you, you think you are, you identified that there's a, an opportunity in healthcare. You had the idea for Sensely. Mm -hmm. Where did that kind of begin? It was 2013. So it was a while ago. So what were the first kind of few years like of getting Sensely yeah. going? Yeah, so um, Sensely actually started in the Orange Voice Lab or the Orange um, the Orange Lab. Orange is a large telecommunications company, uh, you, you may know, based in France yeah, yeah. Uh, and the UK as well. Uh, it used to be France Telecom. And so I worked at the local research lab here in San Francisco. And that's where I built the first prototype of the avatar 
having conversations with patients. That was the original sort of goal of my project. Uh, at that point in time, avatars only existed uh, on the web via Adobe Flash. If you remember that, yeah, yeah. Uh, and it was very, uh, it was you know, at that point in time, the, there were no avatars for the mobile phone, right down to the kind of the frameworks, I, Objective C or, or you know, Java-based Android offered uh, avatar creation tools. So what I did was, this was like the, a hack at the time. Like I, I made Adobe Flash work on on the iPhone, and was able to uh, make the avatar work. Um, on on both um, Android and um, uh, and the iPhone, and the first sort of applications were kind of a symptom checking a, a symptom checking tool, and that's when you know like I I, um, I displayed this tool at like at like an event uh, one of the events here in San Francisco, I think it was Health 2.0, uh, and I got like a standing ovation based on this avatar that are, like this talking avatar nurse that that I built as a demo. And Orange got really excited, and they allowed me to spin out the company, and that's what became Sensely. Uh, and uh, that's how Sensely started in 2013. It was actually a spinoff uh, from Orange. Uh, and the first application that we built was this symptom checking application that was able to essentially that, that we, we we marketed it as a as a virtual nurse, a virtual avatar nurse that you can get on your smartphone. Uh, and you can tell it what your symptoms are, and it would basically navigate and ask a few questions, navigate you to the appropriate place for care. Uh, for care, mm. um, and um, we we uh, we started the company. We joined a couple of accelerators. There was our initial kind of fundraising. Is that we got a couple hundred thousand dollars for from Alchemist Accelerator and a few investors. And our first big client that we landed it was actually the NHS, which you may be familiar with, the National yeah, Health. Yeah. Here in the UK, um, oddly enough, we're a US-based company, but they had this like delegation of NHS people come to the Bay Area, and we wowed them with our avatar, and they kind of let us in into their super secret like um, innovation center, and that's where we we basically refined this uh, triage idea, and it made a lot of sense in the UK uh, before the US because the idea for triage was to basically enhanced uh, uh, the UK's 111 line, which is the, the national uh, the national nurse line, which you, you probably know very well about as well, mm. um, where they wanted to make it more cost effective. Uh, and they wanted to actually route more calls to 111 as opposed to people booking appointments to relieve some pressure on the NHS. So there's a clear business model there where in the, in the US, it's not always valuable to automate uh, medical conversations or to have people go to the most appropriate place of care because every every hospital every doctor wants you to come in more because they want to book more appointments and you know kind of reimburse more from from the insurance companies or health systems um even though that's changing now with value-based care the uk system is a single-payer system so they had a direct incentive uh to reduce costs and make kind of healthcare much more efficient uh to reduce the pressures that you know doctors and, and trusts and hospitals face so that was the, the 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 first business model that we had was to basically relieve the pressure on the NHS, route more calls to the one one one, and actually automate more of the one 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 because a lot of the the conversations that um, uh, that the the one 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 call center agents or nurses were having were you know were basically very scriptable, right? It was a triage. They had this triage book, and they would follow the sort of the, the pattern of the tree in the triage book to ask the right questions and based on kind of that. The outcome they would kind of recommend what the the patient should do next and that's essentially what we mimicked with this virtual nurse service that was available on the smartphone 
And one of the first apps that we built outside of the Sensely app, we built a white labeled app for the NHS called Ask First. It's still around, it's still very popular. It has about 600, 700,000 uh, patients on it. Uh, we, we deploy it in the NHS, we deploy it with like um, clinical commissioning groups and practices. Uh, but the app now has grown from, you know, just, just handling, you know, triage and navigation, uh, we call it signposting. Uh, it handles appointment booking, it handles service, fi uh, finding the right service, it handles, you know, asking your, your GP for like a fit or a sick note. So there's kind of the suite uh, uh, of conversations that we built specifically to manage all these sorts of things. And these conversations are also used with our other clients. You know, we have, mm. we have healthcare conversations for chronic disease management, like to manage a person's hypertension or diabetes. We have conversations for mental health. We have conversations for wellness. We have conversations for just regular type of, you know, administration, customer service type of administration. Um, mm. I want to book an appointment or I want to get a new card or I want to change my address. Um, and, you know, we, in addition to selling our services to, um, you know, like hospitals and health groups, we also sell it to health insurance companies where that incentive of reducing cost, reducing claims costs is also very, uh, very much similar where the insurance companies want you to have this kind of front door uh, for, uh, for your healthcare needs, both administrative, like insurance-based needs, as well as clinical needs. And they can then decide based on what you have, what the appropriate kind of venue of care in their specific network of, of mm. clinical, you know, uh, outposts that they have, whether they're, you know, urgent, urgent or urgent health centers or hospitals or specific doctor networks, they can have that business decision on where, on, on where to route you. And the cost savings kind of go beyond, you know, in IVR or in chatbots in general, a lot of the, the value proposition, right? And the ROI is centered around automation rates, right? How, how many minutes you can reduce from, you know, uh, a call center agent, uh, or you know, every, like we like to say every minute that a chatbot or an avatar performs is a minute that's saved by, you know, from a human talking. Yeah. Um, in, in healthcare, the, the, the business model or the, uh, the value proposition is actually deeper because in addition to saving those minutes, um, you also, by, by creating this kind of smart navigation and clinical decision-making, you're also redirecting traffic. You're directing traffic from, in the NHS, this is particularly true because you're directing, redirecting traffic for high cost services like A&E and emergency rooms that the patients may not need because of their particular condition to more appropriate cost appropriate services like a doctor's appointment or telemedicine or home care. And uh, the value proposition in, in terms of money saved is actually much, much, much more valuable in that kind of traffic uh, redirection. You know, in the NHS for, uh, for, for instance, we estimate that we've reduced about 21% of the costs by basically shifting the, the patient's traffic away from A&Es and certain GP appointments to more appropriate kind of venues of care, as opposed mm -hmm. to what a patient otherwise would have done if they didn't use the service based in their own head. You know, a lot of patients tend to be a little paranoid or ask Dr. Google, yeah, of course, yeah. Yeah. and then they end up in the A&E or the emergency room. And that obviously is the, the most, the highest cost kind of venue that you yeah. can choose. Definitely. Definitely. Um, that's brilliant. So, so, the NHS one, is that using the avatars? Is that over the phone? Is that, because you mentioned an app as well, like yeah. what what is the user interface for that and how would someone yeah. use it? Yeah, so it's 
it's a choice. So our user interface is unique. Um, we have kind of what we call a multimodal conversation engine uh, that we uh, we like to say that we purpose built for healthcare because like regular inter you know chatbot interfaces are you know text you, you type text and the, the bot types text and you have this text interaction. Uh, we have a multimodal interaction where a person can choose to speak to the avatar or interact with the avatar, or they can choose to text with the avatar. And what we deployed specifically in the, in the NHS is both a mobile app where you can choose just with the press of a button, whether you want to have the voice interface with the avatar or whether you want to have a, a chatbot interface. Uh, and some people choose one, some people choose the other. There's advantages to both and different people prefer different things that we don't want to necessarily impose a particular interface on them. So that's available inside the mobile app. That's also available as like a web widget that a lot of practices insert into their website. Like in the bottom right-hand corner is like their own kind of practice digital assistant. So those are the two interfaces that uh, we use today. When we redirect to the 111, we actually do kind of a, 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 a modal switch, right? Where a person is using the app. And then when somebody says, okay, well, you need to go to, you need to speak to a nurse from the 111, we provide just the phone number. And they yeah. call and they switch the voice the voice uh, line for IVR specifically. We haven't really deployed these clinical services too much um, because they tend to be like sim symptom checking tends to be a little bit difficult to do with IVR over the phone just because there are a lot of questions and they're very specific kind of answers that you need to provide. Uh, and you know the options like the way that IVR works, like providing like a list of options or speaking the list of options tends to be a bit cumbersome. So we've avoided more of the voice channel for that, although our, our platform is capable of um, talking basically on any conversational channel. So we have integrations, you know, with Alexa, with with mobile apps, with chatbot application, you know, chatbot services like WhatsApp mm -hmm. or Facebook Messenger. So it's really what the client wants and the kind of channels that they're interested in. We have solutions for these various channels. Yeah. And and is is this is that in the NHS example, is that an application that Sensely has built and manages, or is that within the NHS app that they have themselves? No, it's a separate application. Uh, we do have an integration with the NHS app, uh, but right now it's, a, and it's an application called Ask First. Uh, okay. Yeah, you can find it in the App Store. Uh, you can sign up for anybody in the UK can sign up for an account. That That is our own application that we white label and we manage for the NHS. Uh, but we have a whole bunch of NHS services that we've integrated into the app, including the NHS app itself, uh, but also things like booking appointments with like the EMIS health record, for instance. Mm. We have integrations mm. with that. We have integrations with the 111, uh, as I mentioned, virtual call center. Uh, we have integrations with kind of the, the provider directory that we display. So there's, there's kind of a whole host of uh, integrations that we have. Yeah. And to what extent uh you kind of like well maybe i'll ask the, I'll ask the technology question first because mm -hmm. you mentioned there you've got the, a, a multimodal kind of framework and approach and stuff like that and obviously you've got some real deep experience of working with voice technologies and stuff like that in the past i'm, I'm imagining that everything you've built is is it all proprietary stuff that you've kind of built from the ground up mm -hmm. all the speech recognition text-to-speech the avatars like is all of that stuff that is all just stuff that you've built over the years no way i wish we were that smart to build all that stuff. <laughs> no, but we're definitely not, especially uh, not in building speech recognition ourselves. We rely on best of breed technologies and put them together in unique ways to kind of provide the highest quality service. So for speech recognition, we typically use Google, but we have other integrations as well. Like we have iFlyTech integration in China. 
we've uh, integrated with a nuanced speech recognizer as well. So it really depends. You can kind of pick and choose for a particular deployment which speech recognizer to use or which text to speech to use. For text to speech to use, for text to speech rather, we we've integrated with a whole bunch of engines. We have integrations with Google, with Microsoft Azure Voices, with with Nuance, with uh, uh, Neo Speech, um, and that actually gives us a really broad array of voice talent and quality to choose from. And when we go to a client, what we do is one of our kind of main selling points is that we design uh, a, a unique brand ambassador uh, for the client. And this unique brand ambassador basically involves creating a character that is a recognizable character that, that you know, the client can represent as part of their brand. They're basically their digital assistant worker or their digital nurse worker that you know, looks, looks like, you know, follows all, kind of all the branding guidelines, has a unique voice, has a unique set of languages, right, that they can, they can speak or communicate with, um, has, you know, uh, the dress, the background, uh, the logo, all, all of that is kind of designed to be unique uh, for the client. Uh, one, another example, we just talked about the uh, AXA Global Healthcare, right, is, is a client of Sensei. Um, also in the, in the UK, but they also, they have branches kind of all over the place. And they designed a unique character called Remy. Uh, and Remy, we basically engaged with their marketing department and their marketing department kind of collaborated with us and designed all of these pieces, including picking the right voice that represented their brand as well. And because of these different speech, text-to-speech integrations, we were able to offer like this wide variety of different options to choose from. We have like over, you know, 50 different kind of UK accents I think we can choose from now, like British accents. Um, and they wanted kind of one, I think it was like RP. It's probably the main one. Nice. Um, uh, no the, Northerners in that bunch, is there not? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yorkshire, right? <laughs> yeah. There's a Yorkshire accent too in, in one of the ways. Is there? Yeah. Um, nice. But yeah, uh, it was very important to them to kind of have that both a local presence so they can represent themselves to their main audience, but also have other languages where they can culturally fit with the type of people that are accessing their service from their, the areas that they're serving. And so that character and the voice and the language sort of create that deeper level of uh, trust and connection with mm -hmm. the specific demographics and, and cultures that they're serving. And that's sort of that power of that kind of brand ambassador, but also having this best, best of breed technology integration so we can properly design it for them. Yeah. You, you mentioned on your website, uh, body recognition. Mm-hmm. What, what's body recognition? We don't do that much today. We, uh, we started right. with that early on. So part of the multimodal conversation engine that we built, and when I said, you know, purposely built for healthcare, is that in addition to kind of the text conversation, right, and the voice conversation, and one of the reasons the company is called Sensely is that we try to build in a conversation that involves basically all of your senses. Because when you're at a doctor or you're with a nurse, it's more than just a conversation, right? They're, they're, they're measuring you, right? They're measuring your vital signs. They're measuring your, uh, your body, you know, you know, measurements and things like that. So specifically for body recognition and our, one of our very early implementations, we, um, we integrated with Microsoft Connect. Uh, that's not around anymore, but Microsoft Connect would allow the to, to, to do is to basically measure angles of motion. So this was specifically for a physical therapy use case where we would ask people 
to basically do body movements like raise your hand up and down raise your knee up and you know up and down to do these various flexion flexion type of uh exercises and we use the microsoft connect to actually measure the angles of motion to see whether the patient is improving right. or not uh, and we do similar like i mentioned it's a multimodal interface in our modal definition we also include bluetooth medical devices so when you're having the conversation with the avatar the avatar can actually ask you like please put on your blood pressure cuff and press the button start or step on the weight scale and we take that data via bluetooth and we include it as part of the conversation so that idea of of kind of having a conversation with all the senses was one of the kind of the main uh right. the main the main points of, of of building this this conversation engine it's it's not just a conversation but it's a full kind of sensory interaction if you will interesting nice that's that's wicked it has, I mean, it, it wasn't uh, really taken off commercially but it was it was a nice idea yeah <laughs> yeah 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 that, that kind of, uh, yeah fair enough um but I think that a lot of the things that you've covered in terms of the use cases that you have, symptom check-in, appointments, you know, uh, mental health, whether it's counseling or if you would call it something different, but like, and then getting a new card from your insurance company, changing address. There's a lot of kind of like repeatable patterns in all of these mm -hmm. use cases whereby, you know, you could feasibly kind of like productize these offerings. Is that kind of the route that you've gone through, which is basically every client you have, you've got almost like a, a, a product offering and they just tweak it based on their requirements or is it all custom development and custom building for each opportunity? No, we sell the products that we have first and foremost. So we have the suite of products, as, just as you mentioned, symptom checking, mental health, appointment booking, chronic disease management that includes like specific modules like hypertension, diabetes, the front door, which is an insurance customer service interface. And we sell these products. Yes, these products need to be tweaked, like symptom checking piece. You need to map kind of the outcomes to the insurance company's network. Uh, in some cases, we have to localize or translate the mental health, like for instance, to the local company's regulation. So uh, our primary business is to sell the products that we have. We do have a conversation AI design team on staff that's primarily involved in configuring the products and, and kind of you know tweaking the products as you mentioned for the specific uh you know client needs uh mm -hmm. rarely we involve we involve ourselves in kind of a, a just an open uh conversation design exercise unless it's something that we think that can be productized into a product that we can right. resell um but we don't typically sell you know like just conversation ai services for that for that sake yeah that makes sense um so we've spoke about avatars. Uh, I mentioned before we kind of before we kicked off uh, that there's a Gartner report. Shout out to Sherry Combs for for sharing this uh, with me. So th there's a Gartner stat that says that seventy percent of digital comms will be driven by AI avatars by 2025. What are your thoughts on that? <laughs> you know, as a, as a supporter and promoter of avatars, I'm very sort of honored and you know pleased that that that's the trend um i think avatars have their place in user experiences but i also don't think you know the avatars are uh, end-all be-all type of solution for customer uh, communications one of the problems with avatars and voice in general as compared to chatbots is that it's slower right you know you have to wait you have to wait for the voice to finish 
it's much faster sometimes reading things on screen. So if you just want to like do things quickly, as most people want to do today, especially on smartphones, right? You know, a chatbot is is a is a worthy experience. You know, in our in our deployments, about half, it's about half and half. Half of the people prefer um, the avatar. Half of the people prefer the chatbot. The chatbot works great on like symptom checking because there's just a lot of questions to answer. It doesn't work great on the type of educational modules like for hypertension or for diabetes where you have to educate and explain to people, um, you know, how to, uh, you know, do certain things. Um, and so we believe that that, and this is why we have the button where you can just switch to a chatbot versus the avatar. And we, we, that button is used quite a bit. In certain cases, people prefer text. In certain people, uh, certain cases, people prefer voice. The empathy and the brand experience obviously is leaning towards the, 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 the avatar, but I don't believe, especially looking at the industry as a whole, not just like healthcare, but you know everything. People still really prefer ex expeditious or fast experiences to get tasks done fast. Uh, and avatars are more empathetic, and they they serve a certain segment of the population really well. But overall, people still prefer speed. So I don't necessarily think that seventy percent is the number. I think it's going to be more like fifty percent, somewhere like that. But I don't think all of a sudden avatars are going to take over chatbots because they're just two different types of interfaces for different kinds of use cases and experiences. Yeah, I mean, you, you mentioned there the they can be quite slow. Is it is it uh, the way that you use them? Are you using kind of like a live avatar for one of the better phrase where they they they're just kind of they're on screen. You talk to them, they'll talk back. Or are you using more like videos where like you'll talk to it and then there'll be a clip that plays a video of an avatar speaking and, and then you'll talk to it again. Is it stitched together video or is it like a, yeah. a 3D render of something? It's a 3D render and that's the way we can um, develop these really quickly. Yeah. Um, the 3D render, we also, in our language, in our scripting language, we have, just like SSML, we have cues for the avatar. If we want to, if we want the avatar to show certain emotions uh, or, you know, perform their, some sort of a body movement, like a gesture, uh, there's basically cues in for that. Um, but it, it's pretty difficult to build avatar use cases at scale with by, by stitching together videos. And the technology today, you know, especially kind of these this digital AI rendering technology, pretty much is very hard to tell the difference now. There used to be this problem with Uncanny Valley, right, where people would get a little bit sort of unsettled uh, by looking at a, a voice-based avatar because it looked either too much like a human or not not like a human at all. So they didn't know whether to believe it or whether to trust it. But now we kind of have both ends of the spe spectrum. And actually a lot of our clients prefer more cartoony type of avatars because they know, and we don't want to fool them into, into have them believing that this is an actual human. It has a split, you know, that there's the human, there's the avatar and there's the chat, but an avatar is an avatar. It's not pretending to be a human, even though it looks like a human, it's more like a cartoon. And people yeah. know it's a robot and they don't have the same expectations or they don't, they don't believe that it's an actual human. And that's sort of the space I think where avatars place in the future. I think the uncanny value will still exist if avatars look way too realistic, right? And they're mm -hmm. sort of, you, you don't know whether you're being fooled or not, essentially, by having an actual human. That being said, kind of the opposite end of it, that they do, like if you're uh, asking people open-ended questions or people to emote themselves. The avatar uh, modality is actually very interesting because uh, research has shown, and we've actually um, 
determined this ourselves uh, by looking at our data is that people are more open and honest with an avatar than they are with a chatbot and with a human. Because with an avatar, they don't feel like they're being judged, but they also feel they also don't have to burden themselves with typing in a whole bunch of data. They can just speak it naturally, and they they actually do trust the avatar that you know as a robot. They have that they have more empathy for it. Let's put it that way, even though they know it's a robot, a, a talking robot, than a than a chatbot. And so we have this interesting case study with one of our clients where we compared. Um, understanding or uh, communicating health risks, like for an insurance application, like when you're applying for life insurance, for instance, uh, you know, the insurance company needs to ask you, like, what kind of health risks do you have? Do you have diabetes? Do you have, you know, hypertension? Do you smoke? Do you drink? Uh, how much? And they compared the avatar asking these questions and the, the, the clients or the, the, the members answering to a, to a call center agent that would call on the phone and ask the same questions. And what uh, we determined was that people were about three times more accurate or honest in computing and uh, in, 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 um, communicating their actual health risks to an avatar than they were to a human. And so, wow. in, so in terms of, uh, you know, providing higher quality information that can be used for adjudication or for qualification of these for these policies, the avatar won over the human, which was, wow. was a very interesting finding. It really is. Uh, we ha I had Danny Thompson, uh, who is the CEO of uh, Unique Digital Humans on the podcast a while back, and they found something similar, which was not necessarily compared to humans, but compared to other forms of conversational AI, like chatbots. Mm -hmm. They found that a conversation with an avatar they, they saw led to twice as much engagement. And in, in sales-based conversations, it led to twice as much conversions mm -hmm. as a, a chatbot, for example. So maybe they're slow, maybe they're not for every use case, but there seems to be some sort of something to it that where there's some benefits if you can get the use case right. Yep, absolutely. What, it's all what about about the, the end of the day, it's all about design, the right design. Yeah, so that, that kind of leads me on to the next question, really. And, and this is one of the things I'd, I'd mentioned on LinkedIn when I was kind of posting about this Gartner study, is that the... I'm not experienced in designing interactions with avatars. I've used a lot of the solutions that are out there from, from purely from a test perspective. Uh, and I've, I've been given demos of lots as well. And I haven't seen any yet, like digital human platforms, avatar platforms. I haven't seen any yet that have what I would call mature tooling around the design side of it. Not the designing of what it looks like. There's lots of stuff that you can do to design something that looks good. But in terms of pairing it with a conversational inter conversational AI, it all seems to be very primitive to me. And the ones I've seen, uh, I won't mention the provider's name, but it's basically like the interface is you plug your bot in from somewhere, Dialogflow, IBM or whatever, you design your, uh, your avatar, and then mm -hmm. you've got a screen with just text boxes. Mm -hmm. And you'll say, right, for this intent, do this. Look surprised. For that intent, look angry or whatever. And so... Yeah. That's that's basically it. Was really what you need is every single turn in the conversation. Really, there needs to be a certain type of response because that's how humans will do. You know, when they're listening, they might do certain actions. If you know to confirm, if you if you're talking for a long time, there might be some acknowledgement, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, which requires a nod of the head. And yeah. so, I haven't seen today, and this is one of the limiting factors that I've, that I've been talking about the last couple of weeks in terms of this Gartner study, where they got the data from. I have no idea. But if anything is going to get to the point where 
these things are being going to be adopted more broadly, forgetting the, the cons that you've suggested, yeah. is it seems to me as though the, the interaction between the human and these things needs to be better, which means there needs to be more sophisticated to, tooling around how they behave. Yeah. Yeah, I think I would agree. And I think, you know, the, the issue that I've seen in just the avatar design or the voice design, avatar voice design um, community, if, if you will, is the, the first problem is that there are not that many people that are actually skilled at designing these type of conversations that involve, you know, the senses, right? The avatar senses and, and the voice senses and kind of all that kind of stuff working together. There are very few people, a lot of them have worked for Sensely over the years, <laughs> kind of a little plug there, but um, it does require a unique skill set uh, to be able to have that kind of design in mind. And, you know, we started actually building this kind of tool because we wanted to make it available to our clients, right? To be able to build these conversations themselves using our platform. But we ended up abandoning it because we haven't never found at this point in time a skill set inside our clients that are able to effectively design these kind of conversations in a way that can be very effective in the industry. Mm. Um, and I think, I think the tool at some point is going to be needed, but I also think more importantly, there are more designers or more people that need to be in the space to really refine the art of this kind of design. Um, and uh, th this is maybe a call for more conversation designers who are maybe designing tech chatbot interfaces or voice-based interfaces to get into the avatar design and uh, avatar design kind of processes and maybe build some, you know, create, create a set of rules around it, create a set of guidelines. Uh, a lot of this knowledge is, is just inside a few individuals' heads right now. But I do think at some point, um, th there's de it's definitely a gap. And I agree with you that it's a gap, but we need to have a better sort of tool set for avatar design. I think there's a, um, there's a markup language uh, now for uh, these kind of avatar design that combines like gestures and head nods and blinking and with, with, with right. the typical voice stuff and the typical chatbot stuff. Um, but there hasn't been, I haven't seen uh, any great tool at this point in time that allows you to do that. Uh, but the tool has to be really thought through well. I think it has to not just be a tool where you can combine these kind of turns together, but it has to have some sort of a design element to it uh, and be able to encourage high quality empathetic design, which I think is more of an art than a science right now. Yeah, definitely. Sounds a bit like SSML for avatars, that markup language. Something like that. Uh, what we don't want to have happen, right, is just creating a tool and have everybody become an avatar designer because there's going to be a plethora of like badly built build apps that give yeah. the whole industry a bad name. We want to avoid that as well. Yeah. <laughs> it, it happened with XML, unfortunately, and it happened, I think, well, with <laughs> exactly can you avoid that it happened with the web it happened with yeah. social media yeah. it happened with wordpress you know like when you open up the access you inevitably experience a, a drop in quality because of yes, the sheer number of people that it's, it's going to happen with large language models <clears throat> probably is yeah. happening with large language yeah. models. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> which Everybody's which which i can't that's it that's it um so I definitely can't let you go without touching on large language models and generative AI and things like that. Obviously, you work in a heavily regulated industry, uh, an industry that is, um, I don't know whether risk averse is potentially the, the right way of saying it, but you need to be accurate in what you do and, and the advice that you give and things like that. And so you've got lots of 
you've got two camps with large language models and generative AI. You've got some use cases where it seems as though they, they'll find their feet and, and that proving to be really useful. You've got other use cases where if accuracy is really fundamentally paramount, perhaps you know there's there's more um, uncertainty there in terms of the future potential. What are your thoughts in general around generative AI and large language model in the work that you do? Have you been experimenting with them? Do you think there's a future there? Like, What are your thoughts generally? Yeah. Well, I think it's 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 fantastic, right? That this technology accelerate is accelerating at the rate that it is. Uh, it's it's very good. It's highly intelligent. It gives you like really precise answers sometimes. Uh, but you're right when you mentioned that you know in healthcare particularly we have to be very careful with large language models because not just because they can make mistakes that are clinical, right? Um, but those m- mistakes are actually ha- hard to account account for and governed. Uh, govern because they don't necessarily like a lot with machine learning, especially uh, and, and and artificial intelligence technologies. It's hard to figure out why uh, the algorithm made the decision that it did. Um, and for instance, when you're making clinical decisions, like in symptom checking, when you're telling people you need to go to the emergency room or you, you need to have a you know doctor appointment within 12 hours rather than four hours. Once that mistake is made, it could le- it could lead to loss of life. Which obviously, that's you know you have to be very conservative in, in the healthcare industry, and particularly with enterprise as well, because enterprises are also conservative. Not uh, you know like health insurance companies or other enterprises are conservative, not just because of the clinical decision making, but just by their own legal uh, departments, right? That are kind of very cautious on this technology. So you have to have a way to govern and account for the decisions that are made. Um, but there are specific, you know, non-critical use cases that we've been experimenting with quite a bit. With ChatGPT, we have a plugin into the conversation engine where, you know, a particular set of data that we collect can be sent to ChatGPT, and then the answer comes back. And this is around just kind of customer service and administration, like the things I mentioned around, you know, getting a new card or changing the address or getting a new policy or asking a question about your policy. Uh, Oh, a, a big use case is insurance, for instance, basically taking all the all the policy documentation, all the brochures and all the kind of materials that somebody has around their policy, which are typically in legalese, right, and very hard to understand by a mere mortal, and having people just ask questions about their policy. Does my cover my policy cover this particular thing? If I have this particular situation, you know, like if my, you know, my, my kid is sick and I'm uh, working on this particular time, what does my policy do with, with regards to you know, having a third party sort of manage uh, some of these issues. And those cases actually have been quite successful for us. So we're actively in uh, integration stages with a, a bunch of our clients, I wouldn't say all our clients, to basically take some of these kind of individual type of questions, right? Very selective type of questions and uh, with, with a bunch of data that that enterprise actually has behind it to pinpoint and answer questions in a much more deeper way and precise way than a typical staging of intents. Right, that we we would have to map manually, uh, so that that's been very useful, and I, I think that's sort of the area that's kind of taking off is this, you know, large documentation around policies and, and rules and materials to basically be able to educate and answer questions in a more precise way when 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 customers ask. That's uh, without without a lot of you know clinical risk or without a lot of legal risk. Um, mm. That 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 area is kind of being opened up uh, in in our world at least, and we're we're obviously diving in uh, headstrong into it. Nice. I know we're right up on time. I just have one more, one more question: Is mm-hmm. that so? You've got these policy documents, for mm-hmm. example, 
Um, what do you think the benefits of using the large language model is for those kind of questions versus a more traditional intent-based model? Like you could feasibly take the documents, chunk up the text to figure out like what question does this answer, build mm -hmm. a model to answer those questions as people have done in the past. Mm -hmm. um, what, what do you think are the benefits of using the large language model in, in that instance instead? You know, you don't anticipate the kind of all the questions that people have and the kind and the ways that these people ask the questions. And when you're building these intents, you have to put in very specific, you have to know ahead of time the specific topics and things that people will ask or are interested in. So you have to have that knowledge ahead of time. With a large language model, you don't have to have that knowledge. Um, you know, people ask questions in different ways and different kinds of, uh, you know, unique situations. And you also, sometimes you have to kind of combine different policies together to to bridge or to chain a set of events that you you don't actually get an answer in a particular policy document. Rather, you have to kind of combine these policy documents together with other rules and other sort of situations. That's what a customer service agents typically really good at. You know, they'll look at a policy document, it'll refer to somewhere else, and then it'll refer to a third thing and fourth thing. So chaining these different types of data together to answer a question that is kind of more unique and more specific to what uh, the person is asking for that's the that's the benefit of these large language models as opposed to you know figuring out these kind of questions and intents ahead of time i think interesting that's a really good way of putting it that actually not having to define what you what the questions are going to be up front and so are you using prompt chaining then to where you get a spot in a document where it says refer to this document to then go and search and look up that document and then find the right piece and then extract that all back are you, you are you doing like sort of like prompt chaining behind the scenes or is, is there another way of doing that um we are using prompt chaining and there's some other uh, technology i don't know i'll have to get um uh our, our actually we have an AI, ai expert that's uh basically doing this stuff uh, but there is a way to do the prompt chaining but there's also a way to basically uh, create relationships uh and specifications between the different documents about kind of the, the broader category of questions that people have so there's a there's a part that's still intent matching that's still sort of that traditional dialogue flow type, you know, set of intents. But then there's connections within those intents to more specific questions uh, based on the way the question is worded or based on the detail that's included in the question. Uh, and that's how we're kind of, it's still a, somewhat of a manual process to link these documents together. So it's not all kind of magic out of the box. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nice. Wicked. Well, thank you. That was that's absolutely fantastic, Adam. Adam Modeski, thank you so much for joining me. It's an absolute pleasure. Uh, it's been a riveting conversation. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for for spending the time yeah, with me. Thanks, Kane. Yeah, appreciate you having me on. Have a good rest no of your day. No problem. Yeah, and yourself. And thank you all for tuning in. And uh, don't forget, next week after next, we've got the webinar Thursday the ninth of November with Wisdom. And uh, if you are in healthcare or health insurance, which I know quite a few of our uh, listeners and subscribers are, and if you're interested in everything that Adam has had to say today and Sensely in general, you can visit sensely.com to find out more. S e n s e l y com don't be a stranger and reach out if you think that this solution would be useful for you which i think it may be for many adam thank you again it's been an absolute pleasure thank you kane